I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Exodus 15.9 When the Jewish council beheld Stephen and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel, irradiated with heavenly glory, instead of receiving his message, when they heard his words, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth, and like so many raging maniacs, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. Acts 7, 54-58 Beware of resisting God and rejecting his word, lest you be abandoned by him, and he suffers your madness to hasten your destruction. The more it was manifest that God was with Elijah, the more was Jezebel exasperated against him. Now that she learned he had slain her priests, she was like a lioness robbed of her cubs. Her rage knew no bounds. Elijah must be slain at once. Boastful of the morrow, swearing by her gods, she pronounced a fearful imprecation upon herself if Elijah does not meet the same end. The resolution of Jezebel shows the extreme hardness of her heart. It solemnly illustrates how wickedness grows on people. Sinners do not reach such fearful heights of defiance in a moment, but as conscience resists convictions, as light is again and again rejected, the very things which should soften and humble come to harden and make more insolent, and the more plainly God's will be set before us, the more will it work resentment in the mind and hostility in the heart. Then it is but a short time until that soul is consigned to the everlasting burnings. But see here the overruling hand of God. Instead of ordering her officers to slay the prophet forthwith, Jezebel sent a servant to announce her sentence upon him. How often mad passions defeat their own ends, fury blinding the judgment so that prudence and caution are not exercised. Possibly she felt so sure of her prey that she feared not to announce her purpose. But future events lie not at the disposal of the sons of men no matter what positions of worldly power be occupied by them. Probably she thought that Elijah was so courageous, there was no likelihood of his attempting an escape, but in this she erred. How often God takes the wise in their own craftiness, Job 5.13, and, and defeats the counsels of the wicked Ahithophels, 2 Samuel 15.31. Herod had murderous designs on the infant Savior, but being warned of God in a dream, his parents carried him down to Egypt, Matthew 2.12. The Jews took counsel to kill the Apostle Paul, but their laying weight was known to him, and the disciples delivered him out of their hands, Acts 9.23. So here, Elijah is given warning before Jezebel wreaks her vengeance on him. This brings us to the saddest part of the narrative. The Tishbite is notified of the queen's determination to slay him. What was his response thereto? He was the Lord's servant. Does he then look unto his master for instructions? Again and again we have seen in the past how the word of the Lord came to him. Chapter 17, verses 2 and 8, and chapter 18, verse 1, telling him what to do. Will he now wait upon the Lord for necessary guidance? Alas, instead of spreading his case before God, he takes matters into his own hands, Instead of waiting patiently for him, he acts on hasty impulse, deserts the post of duty, and flees from the one who sought his destruction. 
And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 3. Notice carefully the when he saw, he arose and went for his life. His eyes were fixed on the wicked and furious king. His mind was occupied with her power and fury, and therefore his heart was filled with terror. Faith in God is the only deliverer from carnal fear. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 12, verse 2, and 26, verse 3. Elijah's mind was no longer stayed upon Jehovah, and therefore fear took possession of him. Hitherto Elijah had been sustained by faith's vision of the living God, but now he lost sight of the Lord and saw only a furious woman. How many solemn warnings are recorded in Scripture of the disastrous consequences of walking by sight. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, Genesis 13.10, and made choice thereof. But very shortly after, it is recorded of him that he pitched his tent toward Sodom, the majority report of the twelve men sent by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan was, We saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Numbers 13.33 In consequence of which, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Walking by sight magnifies difficulties and paralyzes spiritual activity. It was when Peter saw the wind boisterous that he was afraid and began to sink. Matthew 14.30 How striking the contrast between Elijah here and Moses, who, by faith, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 And nothing but the eye of faith fixed steadily upon God will enable anyone to endure. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, not for God, not for the good of his people, but because he thought only of self. The man who had faced the 450 false prophets now fled from one woman. The man who hitherto had been so faithful in the Lord's service now deserted his post of duty, and that at a time when his presence was most needed by the people if their convictions were to be strengthened and the work of reformation carried forward and firmly established. Alas, what is man? As Peter's courage failed him in the presence of the maid, so Elijah's strength wilted before the threatenings of Jezebel. Shall we exclaim, How are the mighty fallen? No, indeed, for that would be a carnal and erroneous conception. The truth is that it is only as God vouchsafes his grace and Holy Spirit that any man can walk uprightly. Elijah's conduct on this occasion shows that the spirit and courage he had previously manifested were of the Lord and not of himself, and that those who have the greatest zeal and courage for God and his truth, if left to themselves, become weak and timorous. John Gill Chapter 23 In the Wilderness the lot of God's people is a varied one and their case is marked by frequent change. We cannot expect that it should be otherwise while they are left in this scene, for there is nothing stable here. Mutability and fluctuation characterizes everything under the sun. Man is born unto trouble 
as the sparks fly upward, and the common experience of saints is no exception to this general rule. In the world ye shall have tribulation, John 16.33. Christ plainly warned his disciples, yet he added, But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, and therefore ye shall share in my victory. Yet though victory be sure, they suffer many defeats along the way. They do not enjoy unbroken summer in their souls, nor is it always winter with them. Their voyage across the sea of life is similar to that encountered by mariners on the ocean. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. Psalm 107, 26 and 28 nor is it any otherwise with God's public servants. True, they enjoy many privileges which are not shared by the rank and file of the Lord's people, and for these they must yet render an account. Ministers of the gospel do not have to spend most of their time and strength amid the ungodly, toiling for their daily bread. Instead, they are shielded from constant contact with the wicked, and much of their time may be and should be spent in quiet study meditation, and prayer. Moreover, God has bestowed special spiritual gifts on them, a larger measure of his spirit, a deeper insight into his word, and therefore they should be far better fitted to cope with the trials of life. Nevertheless, tribulation is also their portion while left in this wilderness of sin. Indwelling corruptions give them no rest day or night, and the devil makes them the special objects of his malice, ever busy seeking to disturb their peace and impair their usefulness, venting upon them the full fury of his hatred. More may rightly be expected from the minister of the gospel than from others. He is required to be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, behavior, in charity, love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, 1 Timothy 4.12, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, Titus 2.7. But though a man of God, he is a man, and not an angel, compassed with infirmity and prone to evil. God has placed his treasure in earthen vessels, not steel or gold, easily cracked and marred, worthless in themselves. That, adds the apostle, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. 2 Corinthians 4.7 That is, the glorious gospel proclaimed by ministers is no invention of their brains, and the blessed effects which it produces are in no wise due to their skill. They are but instruments weak and valueless in themselves. Their message is God-given, and its fruits are entirely of the Holy Spirit, so that they have no ground whatever for self-glorification, nor have those who are benefited by their labors any reason to make heroes out of them or look up to them as superior order of beings who are to be regarded as little gods. The Lord is very jealous of his honor and will not share his glory with another. His people profess to believe that as a cardinal truth, yet they are apt to forget it. They too are human and prone to hero worship, prone to idolatry, prone to render unto the creatures that to which the Lord alone is entitled. Hence it is they so frequently meet with disappointment and discover their beloved idol is, like themselves, made of clay. 
For his own people God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the weak things, the base things, and things which are not, mere nobodies, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27-29 And he has called sinful, though regenerated men, and not holy angels, to be the preachers of his gospel, that it might fully appear that the excellency of the power in calling sinners out of darkness into his marvelous light does not lie in them, nor proceeds from them, but that he alone gives the increase to the seed sown by them. So then neither is he that planteth, the evangelist, anything, neither is he that watereth, the teacher, but God. 1 Corinthians 3.7 It is for this reason that God suffers it to appear that the best of men are but men at best. No matter how richly gifted they may be, how eminent in God's service, how greatly honored and used of him, let his sustaining power be withdrawn from them for a moment, and it will quickly be seen that they are earthen vessels. No man stands any longer than he is supported by divine grace. The most experienced saint, if left to himself, is immediately seen to be as weak as water and as timid as a mouse. Man at his best estate is altogether vanity. Psalm 39, 5 Then why should it be thought a thing incredible when we read of the failings and falls of the most favored of God's saints and servants? Noah's drunkenness, Lot's carnality, Abraham's prevarications, Moses' anger, Aaron's jealousy, Joshua's haste, David's adultery, Jonah's disobedience, Peter's denial, Paul's contention with Barnabas are so many illustrations of the solemn truth that there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Perfection is found in heaven, but nowhere on earth except in the perfect man. Yet let it be pointed out that the failures of these men are not recorded in Scripture for us to hide behind, as though we may use them to excuse our own infidelities. Far from it, they are set before us as so many danger signals for us to take note of, as solemn warnings for us to heed. The reading thereof should humble us, making us more distrustful of ourselves. They should impress upon our hearts the fact that our strength is found alone in the Lord, and that without Him we can do nothing. They should be translated into earnest prayer that the workings of pride and self-sufficiency may be subdued within us. They should cause us to cry constantly, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 119, 117 Not only so, they should wean us from undue confidence in the creatures and deliver us from expecting too much of others, even of the fathers in Israel. They should make us diligent in prayer for our brethren in Christ, especially for our pastors, that it may please God to preserve them from everything which would dishonor his name and cause his enemies to rejoice. The man at whose prayers the windows of heaven had been fast closed for three and a half years, and at whose supplication they had again been opened, was no exception. He too was made of flesh and blood, and this was permitted to be painfully manifest. Jezebel sent a message to inform him that on the morrow he should suffer the same fate as had overtaken her prophets. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. In the midst of his glorious triumph over the enemies of the Lord, 
at the very time the people needed him to lead them in the total overthrow of idolatry and the establishment of true worship, he is terrified by the queen's threat and flees. It was the hand of the Lord which had brought him to Jezreel, 1 Kings 18.46, and he received no divine intimation to move from there. Surely it was both his privilege and duty to look unto his master to protect him from Jezebel's rage, as he had done before from Ahab. Had he committed himself into the hands of God, he had not failed him, and great good had probably been accomplished if he had now remained at the post where the Lord had put him. But his eyes were no longer fixed upon God. Instead they saw only a furious woman, the one who had miraculously fed him at the brook Cherith, who had so wondrously sustained him at the widow's home in Zarephath, and who so signally strengthened him on Carmel, is forgotten. Thinking only of himself, he flees from the place of testimony. But how is this strange lapse to be accounted for? Obviously, his fears were excited by the queen's threat coming to him so unexpectedly. Was there not good reason for him now to be anticipating with great joy and exultation the cooperation of all Israel in the work of reformation? Would not the whole nation who had cried, Jehovah, he is God, be deeply thankful for his prayers having procured the much-needed rain? And in a moment his hope seemed to be rudely shattered by this message from the incensed queen. Had he then lost all faith in God to protect him? Far be it from us so to charge him. Rather does it seem that he was momentarily overwhelmed, panic-stricken. He gave himself no time to think, but taken completely by surprise, he acted on the spur of the moment. How that gives point to, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 While what has been pointed out above accounts for Elijah's hurried action, yet it does not explain his strange lapse. It was the absence of faith which caused him to be filled with fear. But let it be stated that the exercise of faith lies not at the disposal of the believer, so that he may call it into action whenever he pleases. Not so. Faith is a divine gift, and the exercise of it is solely by divine power, and both in its bestowment and its operations God acts sovereignly. Yet though God ever acts sovereignly, he never acts capriciously. He afflicts not willingly, but because we give him occasion to use the rod. He withholds grace because of our pride, withdraws comfort because of our sins. God permits his people to experience falls along the road for various reasons, yet in every instance the outward fall is preceded by some failure or other on their part. And if we are to reap the full benefit from the recorded sins of such as Abraham, David, Elijah, and Peter, we need to study attentively what led up to and was the occasion of them. This is generally done with Peter's case, yet rarely so with the others. In most instances, the preceding contexts give plain intimation of the first signs of declension, as the spirit of self-confidence signally marked the approaching fall of Peter. But in the case before us, the previous verses supply no clue to the eclipse of Elijah's faith. Yet the verses which follow indicate the cause of his relapse. When the Lord appeared unto him and asked, What doest thou here, Elijah? 19.9 The prophet answered, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, 
thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Does not that tell us first that he had been entertaining too great a regard of his own importance? Second, that he was unduly occupied with his service. I, even I only, am left to maintain thy cause. And third, that he was chagrined at the absence of those results he had expected. The workings of pride, his threefold I, choked the exercises of faith. Observe how Elijah repeated those statements, verse 14, and how God's response seems by his very corrective to specify the disease. Elisha was appointed in his stead. God then withdrew his strength for the moment that Elijah might be seen in his native weakness. He did so righteously, for grace is promised only to the humble, James 4, 6. Yet in this God acts sovereignly, for it is only by his grace that any man is kept humble. He gives more faith to one than another, and maintains it more evenly in certain individuals. How great the contrast from Elijah's flight with Elisha's faith. When the king of Syria sent a great host to arrest the latter, and his servant said, Alas, my master, how shall we do? The prophet answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Second Kings 6, verses 15 and 16. When the empress Eudoxia sent a threatening message to Christosome, he bade her officer, Go tell her, I fear nothing but sin. When the friends of Luther earnestly begged him not to proceed to the Diet of Worms, to which he had been summoned by the emperor, he replied, Though every tile on the houses of that city were a devil, I will not be deterred. And he went, and God delivered him out of his enemy's hands. Yet the infirmities of Christosome and Luther were manifested on other occasions. It was his being occupied with the circumstances which brought about Elijah's sad fall. It is a dictum of the world's philosophy that man is the creature of his circumstances. No doubt this is largely the case with the natural man, but it should not be true of the Christian, nor is it so while his graces remain in a healthy condition. Faith views the one who orders our circumstances. Hope looks beyond the present scene. Patience gives strength to endure trials. And love delights in him whom no circumstances affect. While Elijah set the Lord before him, he feared not, though a host encamped against him. But when he looked upon the creature and contemplated his peril, he thought more of his own safety than of God's cause. To be occupied with circumstances is to walk by sight, and that is fatal both to our peace and spiritual prosperity. However unpleasant or desperate be our circumstances, God is able to preserve us in them, as he did Daniel in the lion's den, and his companions in the fiery furnace. Yea, he is able to make the heart triumph over them, as witnessed the singing of the apostles in the Philippian dungeon. Oh, what need have we to cry, Lord, increase our faith, for we are only strong and safe while exercising faith in God. If he be forgotten, and his presence with us be not realized at the time when great dangers menace us, then we are certain to act in a manner unworthy of our Christian profession. It is by faith we stand, 2 Corinthians 1.24, as it is through faith we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, 
1 Peter 1.5 if we truly set the Lord before us and contemplate him as being at our right hand, nothing will move us, none can make us afraid. We will bid defiance to the most powerful and malignant. Yet, as another has said, but where is the faith that never staggers through unbelief, the hand that never hangs down, the knee that never trembles, the heart that never faints? Nevertheless, the fault is ours, the blame is ours. Though it lies not in our power to strengthen faith or call it into exercise, we may weaken it and hinder its operations. After saying, Thou standest by faith, the apostle at once added, Be not high-minded, but fear. Romans 11.20 Be distrustful of self, for it is pride and self-sufficiency which stifle the breathings of faith. Many have thought it strange when they read, of the most noteworthy of biblical saints failing in the very graces which were their strongest. Abraham is outstanding for his faith, being called the father of all them that believe. Yet his faith broke down in Egypt when he lied to Pharaoh about his wife. We are told that Moses was very meek, above all the men who were upon the face of the earth, Numbers 12.3. Yet he was debarred from entering Canaan because he lost his temper and spoke unadvisedly with his lips. John was the apostle of love, yet in a fit of intolerance he and his brother James wanted to call down fire from heaven so that the Samaritans be destroyed, for which the Savior rebuked them. Luke 9:54 and 55 Elijah was renowned for his boldness, yet it was his courage which now failed him. What proofs are these that none can exercise those graces which most distinguish their characters without the immediate and constant assistance of God, and that, when in danger of being exalted above measure, they are often left to struggle with temptation without their accustomed support? Only by conscious and acknowledged weakness are we made strong. A few words only must suffice in making application of this sad incident. Its outstanding lesson is obviously a solemn warning unto those occupying public positions in the Lord's vineyard. When he is pleased to work through and by them, there is sure to be bitter and powerful opposition stirred up against them. Said the Apostle, A great and effectual door is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. 1 Corinthians 16.9 The two ever go together. Yet if the Lord be our confidence and strength, there is nothing to fear. A heavy and well-nigh fatal blow had been given to Satan's kingdom that day on Carmel, and had Elijah stood his ground, would not the seven thousand secret worshippers of Jehovah had been emboldened to come forth on his side, the language of Micah 4, 6, and 7, been accomplished, and the captivity and dispersion of his people spared? Alas, one false step and such a bright prospect was dashed to the ground and never returned. Seek grace, O servant of God, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Ephesians 6.13 But does not this sad incident also point a salutary lesson which all believers need to take to heart? This solemn fall of the prophet comes almost immediately after the marvels which had been accomplished in response to his supplications. How strange! Rather, how searching! 
In the preceding chapters, we emphasized that the glorious transactions wrought upon Mount Carmel supply the Lord's people with a most blessed illustration and demonstration of the efficacy of prayer. And surely this pathetic sequel shows what need they have to be on their guard when they have received some notable mercy from the throne of grace. If it was needful that the apostle should be given a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest he should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations vouchsafed him, 2 Corinthians 12.7, then what need have we to rejoice with trembling, Psalm 2.11, when we are elated over receiving answers to our petitions. Chapter 24, Dejected We are now to behold the effects which Elijah's giving way to fear had upon him. The message which had come from Jezebel, that on the morrow she would take revenge upon him for his slaying of her prophets, rendered the Tishbite panic-stricken. For the moment God saw fit to leave him to himself, that we might learn the strongest are weak as water when he withholds his support, as the powerful Samson was as impotent as any other man, as soon as the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. It matters not what growth has been made in grace, how well experienced we may be in this spiritual life, or how eminent the position we have occupied in the Lord's service. When he withdraws his sustaining hand, the madness which is in our hearts by nature at once asserts itself, gains the upper hand, and leads us into a course of folly. Thus it was now with Elijah. Instead of taking the angry queen's threat unto the Lord and begging him to undertake, he takes matters into his own hands and went for his life. 1 Kings 19.3 In the preceding chapter we intimated why it was that the Lord suffered his servant to experience a lapse at this time. In addition to what was there said, we believe the prophet's flight was a punishment on Israel for the insincerity and inconstancy of their reformation. One would have expected, after such a public and sensible manifestation of the glory of God, and such a clear decision of the contest pending between him and Baal, to the honor of Elijah, the confusion of Baal's prophets, and the universal satisfaction of the people, after they had seen both fire and water come from heaven at the prayer of Elijah, and both in mercy to them, the one as a sign of the acceptance of their offering, the other as it refreshed their inheritance, that they should now all as one man have returned to the worship of the God of Israel, and taken Elijah for their guide and oracle, that he, that he should henceforth have been their prime minister of state, and his directions laws both to king and kingdom. But it is quite otherwise. He is neglected whom God honored. No respect is paid to him, nor any use made of him. On the contrary, the land of Israel, to which he had been and might yet have been a great blessing, is soon made too hot for him. Matthew Henry His departure from Israel was a judgment upon them. In the scriptures, God's children are exhorted again and again not to fear. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Isaiah 8.12 But how are weak and trembling souls to render obedience to this precept? The very next verse tells us, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. It is the fear of the Lord in our hearts which delivers from the fear of man, the filial awe of displeasing and dishonoring him who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Be not afraid of their faces, said God to another of his servants, adding, For I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 1.8 Ah, it is the consciousness of his presence which faith must realize if fear is to be stilled. Christ admonished his disciples for their fear. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Matthew 8.26 Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. 1 Peter 3.14 Is the word which we are required to take to heart. In connection with Elijah's flight from Jezebel, we are told first that he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. 1 Kings 19.3 There it might be thought a safe asylum would be secured, for he was now outside the territory governed by Ahab. But it was only a case, as the old saying goes, of jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. For at that time the kingdom of Judah was ruled over by Jehoshaphat, and his son had married the daughter of Ahab, 2 Kings 8.18. And so closely were the two houses of Jehoshaphat and Ahab united, that when the former was asked to join the latter in an expedition against Ramoth-Gilead, Jehoshaphat declared, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. 1 Kings 22.4 Thus Jehoshaphat would have had no compunction in delivering up the one who had fled to his land as soon as he received command from Ahab and Jezebel to that effect. So tarry in Beersheba Elijah dare not, but flees yet farther. Beersheba lay towards the extreme south of Judea, being situated in the inheritance of Simeon, and it is estimated that Elijah and his companion covered no less than ninety miles in their journey thither from Jezreel. Next we are told that he left his servant there. Here we behold the prophet's thoughtfulness and compassion for his lone retainer. Anxious to spare him the hardships of the dreary wilderness of Arabia, which he now proposed to enter, in this considerate act, the prophet sets an example for masters to follow, who should not require their dependents to encounter unreasonable perils, nor perform services above their strength. Moreover, Elijah now wished to be alone with his trouble, and not give vent to his feelings of despair in the presence of another. This, too, is worthy of emulation. When fear and unbelief fill his heart, and he is on the point of giving expression to his dejection, the Christian should retire from the presence of others, lest he infect them with his morbidity and petulance. Let him unburden his heart to the Lord, and spare the feelings of his brethren. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Verse 4 Here we are given to see another effect of fear and unbelief. It produces perturbation and agitation, so that a spirit of restlessness seizes the soul. And how can it be otherwise? Rest of soul is to be found nowhere but in the Lord, by communing with and confiding in Him. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Isaiah 57.20 Necessarily so, for they are utter strangers to the rest-giver. The way of peace have they not known. Romans 3.17 When the Christian is out of fellowship with God, when he takes matters into his own hands, when faith and hope are no longer in exercise, his case is no better than that of the unregenerate, for he has cut himself off from his comforts and is thoroughly miserable. Contentment and delighting in the Lord's will is no longer his portion. Instead, his mind is in a turmoil. 
he is thoroughly demoralized and now vainly seeks to find relief in a ceaseless round of diversions and the feverish activities of the flesh. He must be on the move, for he is completely discomposed. He wearies himself in vain exercises till his natural strength gives out. Follow the prophet with your mind's eye. Hour after hour he plods along beneath the burning sun, his feet blistered by the scorching sands, alone in the dreary desert. At last fatigue and anguish overcome his sinewy strength, and he came and sat under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. Verse 4 The first thing we would note in this connection is that, disheartened and despondent as he was, Elijah made no attempt to lay violent hands on himself. Though now for a season God had withdrawn his comforting presence and in a measure withheld his restraining grace, yet he did not and never does wholly deliver one of his own into the power of the devil. And he requested for himself that he might die. The second thing we would note is the inconsistency of his conduct. The reason why Elijah left Jezreel so hurriedly on hearing of Jezebel's threat was that he went for his life and now he longs that his life might be taken from him. Herein we may perceive still another effect when unbelief and fear possesses the heart. Not only do we then act foolishly and wrongly, not only does a spirit of unrest and discontent take possession of us, but we are thrown completely off our balance, the soul loses its poise, and consistency of conduct is at an end. The explanation of this is simple. Truth is uniform and harmonious, whereas error is multiform and incongruous. But for the truth to control us effectually, faith must be in constant exercise. When faith ceases to act, we at once become erratic and undependable, and, as men speak, we are soon a bundle of contradictions. Consistency of character and conduct is dependent upon a steady walking with God. Probably there are few of God's servants, but who at some time or other are eager to cast off their harness and cease from the toils of conflict, particularly when their labors seem to be in vain and they are disposed to look upon themselves as cumberers of the ground. When Moses exclaimed, I am not able to bear all these people alone because it is too heavy for me, he at once added, And if thou deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee out of hand. Numbers 11:14 and 15. So too Jonah prayed, Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 4:3. Nor is a longing to be removed from this world of trouble peculiar to the ministers of Christ. Many of the rank and file of his people also are at times moved to say with David, Oh, that I had wings like a dove! For then would I fly away and be at rest. Psalm 55, 6 Short as is our sojourn down here, it seems long, too long for some of us, and though we cannot vindicate Elijah's peevishness and petulance, yet this writer can certainly sympathize with him under the juniper tree, for he has often been there himself. It should, however, be pointed out that there is a radical difference between desiring to be delivered from a world of disappointment and sorrow and the longing to be delivered from this body of death in order that we may be present with the Lord. The latter was the case with the apostle when he said, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Philippians 1.23 
a desire to be freed from abject poverty or a bed of languishing is only natural, but a yearning to be delivered from a world of iniquity and a body of death so that we may enjoy unclouded communion with the Beloved is truly spiritual. One of the greatest surprises of our own Christian life has been to find how few people give evidence of the latter. The majority of professors appear to be so wedded to this scene, so in love with this life, or so fearful of the physical aspect of death, that they cling to life as tenaciously as do non-professors. Surely heaven cannot be very real to them. True, we ought submissively to wait God's time, yet that should not preclude or override a desire to depart and be with Christ. But let us not lose sight of the fact that in his dejection Elijah turned to God and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Verse 4 No matter how cast down we be, how acute our grief, it is ever the privilege of the believer to unburden his heart unto that one who sticketh closer than a brother, and pour out our complaint into his sympathetic ear. True, he will not wink at what is wrong. Nevertheless, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. True, he will not always grant us our request, for oft times we ask amiss, James 4.3. Yet, if he withholds what we desire, it is because he has something better for us. Thus it was in the case of Elijah. The Lord did not take away his life from him at that time. He did not do so later, for Elijah was taken to heaven without seeing death. Elijah is one of the only two who have entered heaven without passing through the portals of the grave. Nevertheless, for God's chariot, Elijah had to wait God's appointed time. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. He was tired of the ceaseless opposition which he encountered, weary of the strife. He was disheartened in his labors, which he felt were of no avail. I have striven hard, but it has been in vain. I have toiled all night and caught nothing. It was the language of disappointment and fretfulness. It is enough. I am unwilling to fight any longer. I have done and suffered sufficient. Let me go hence. We are not sure what he signified by his, I am not better than my father's. Possibly he was pleading his weakness and incapacity. I am not stronger than they and no better able to cope with the difficulties they encountered. Perhaps he alluded to the lack of fruit in his ministry. Nothing comes of my labors. I am no more successful than they were. Or maybe he was intimating his disappointment because God had not fulfilled his expectations. He was thoroughly despondent and anxious to quit the arena. See here once more the consequences which follow upon giving way to fear and unbelief. Poor Elijah was now in the slough of despond, an experience which most of the Lord's people have at some time or other. He had forsaken the place into which the Lord had brought him, and now was tasting the bitter effects of a course of self-will. All pleasure had gone out of life. The joy of the Lord was no longer his strength. Oh, what a rod do we make for our backs when we deliberately depart from the path of duty. By leaving the paths of righteousness, we cast ourselves off from the springs of spiritual refreshment, and therefore the wilderness is now our dwelling place. And there we sit down in utter dejection alone in our wretchedness, 
for there is none to comfort us while we are in such a state. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.